Hey, and welcome back to 52 Founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'm a bit under the weather right now, but luckily this week I had the pleasure of speaking to Sanan Ozdemir, founder and CTO of Kylie.ai. Kylie.ai utilizes deep learning to clone personalities in order to automate workplace communication. Sanan is actually the author of the book, The Principles of Data Science, where he teaches the techniques and math you need to make sense of your data. It was interesting to speak with Sanan and to learn more about where he sees AI going. Our interview was one of my favorites today, and I cannot wait for you all to take a listen. excited to have you. I'm excited to be here. So start by telling us about Kylie. Is it just Kylie.ai or Kylie? Kylie.ai. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So what we do is we use deep learning technology in order to clone personalities to automate communications in the workplace. Yeah. So tell me more about that. I, I you know, I'm finding that you know, as someone who used to do sales or run sales strategy, I think that would be so helpful um, just from the sheer number of, of outward um, leads you have to build. But what are your typical use cases that you're finding? Right. So we actually work across sales, marketing, customer support. But actually, we find that the biggest pain point is in customer support. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a big loss center, you know, that, you know, we some companies have thousands of tickets coming in and a lot of them go unanswered or they're answered with a really bad, uh, unempathetic response. So what we're doing is we're trying to scale the best employees at the company so that we give them kind of superpowers so they can answer more messages in the day. So basically what we're doing is we're allowing the humans to spend more time on the human centric tasks and not spend as much time on those really repetitive questions. So let's say you're a utilities company and, you know, a customer support rep might get a really generic question like, where's my account number or why is my gas turned off? Um, And these are questions that they get all the time. So if we can automate the really easy questions with an empathetic response, it, it frees up the rep to answer a much mm-hmm. more complicated question like, uh, you know, very personal account centric questions. That's really interesting. And so or do you plan to integrate with features like Zendesk, you know, given that you're focused on customer support? Yeah, so actually our first app is in Zendesk. Uh, Our Zendesk app uh, is our first product, and we are going to be able to integrate this into many other customer support, sales, marketing mediums like Twitter and even just straight email. Uh, Because the cool thing about Kylie is that it's not just a Zendesk app. It's really a technology layer. Uh, So what we're trying to be is a go-to conversational AI uh, technology. So not necessarily mm-hmm. just Zendesk and just customer support, uh, but we want to empower people in general uh, who want to automate uh, communication at their work. Got it. And so how did you come up with this idea? So before Kylie, I was working on another startup called Legion Analytics, uh, which went mm-hmm. through the Y Combinator Fellowship Batch 1. And it was a sales automation play. So we were helping companies uh, use machine learning to find prospects, reach out to prospects, follow up with prospects, so on and so forth. 
so I developed this kind of weekend project as an add-on for our sales customers uh, that would go back in their email and, and find a similar email and, and just draft a response directly in line in their workflow. And people love that product so much uh, that we found that more often than not, people were signing up for the sales platform just for this automated drafting capability. They didn't want leads. They didn't want anything else CRM-wise. They just wanted the automatic drafting. So once that reached a tipping point, uh, we decided to switch gears full on with Kylie, which is the extension of that automatic drafting application. Got it. And where does the name up come from? So we actually A-B tested, well, really A-B-C-D-E-F-G tested uh, <laughs> Kylie with a lot of other different personalities and names. Mm -hmm. um, we settled on Kylie because we had found that she was getting the best reception uh, from the sales community. Uh, people would respond to her even if they were uninterested. They would tell her, I'm uninterested, which is if you're a salesperson, that's usually not going to happen. They're just not going to respond to you. Uh, so we started with the name Kylie, uh, but because she's not just a single personality, uh, whenever you use us to clone a personality, you know, we become Mark, we become Christina, we become mm -hmm. Bob. Got it. You know, it's funny, and this is um, totally conjecture based on my experience, but I feel like most AI products actually are female, named after females. And I wonder why that That's, is. No, you're actually right. And I've actually okay. thought that myself. You know, you're talking about Amy, uh, Clara. Yeah. Uh, most of the big names that you can think of in AI actually are uh, theory, technically, I would assume, as a woman. Uh, Cortana, uh, the Microsoft. Um, Alexa, yeah. Alexa, of course, Alexa. Google Home, I think, is just and, uh, well, a name, I think but it's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, you're actually not wrong. And I think, again, this is purely conjecture. My degrees are in math, not psychology. Um, I think the, I, uh, the reasoning there is most people are receptive, more receptive to a female voice, at least to a male voice. Um, and I, I guess that must translate over to text-based communication. Mm -hmm. But then again, Hey, that's all, that's purely conjecture on my part. Did you only test female names? No, no, we tested a wide variety of names. Um, we tested everything from Kylie to my name, Sanan, to Demi, who is a friend of ours from school, to Mike Smith. You know, it's like a really, really generic male, female. Yeah, we tried all over the map. Uh, we tried all over the map. And Kylie wasn't even the best by far, honestly. <laughs> Kylie was yeah. first place uh, with very close second and third. One of them was just Mike. Mike was actually second place. Uh, yeah, Mike was in second place. So it's That's not so like funny. Kylie, the female name, was way out in front. Uh, but See, I would, have thought that, um, I would have posited that people responded to Kylie because it sounds like an interesting name that's so unique that you might think it's a real person. <laughs> but again... Uh, um, I mean, I think, yeah, I think that's actually one of the reasons I know Amy and Clara chose that name as well. Yeah. All right, well... Enough nerding out about that for now. We're going to go back and focus on you. So tell me about what your childhood was like, where you grew up, um, what your parents did for a living, 
if you have any siblings, just kind of paint me a picture. Sure. Uh, I was actually raised uh, between Poland and Turkey. My parents oh. are both my parents are both full Turkish from um, Istanbul. Uh, they, my dad is slash was an executive at General Electric, where he focuses on uh, uh, GE trading. My mom actually has her graduate degrees in math, uh, so like mother, like son. But actually, she now focuses on early childhood development. So she uses a lot of that logic-based skill to work with children under the age of seven or eight. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, my sister actually works in counterterrorism at the State Department in Washington, D.C. So very similar. (laughs) We're really kind of all over the map. Uh, You know, when we were growing up, my sister is a little older than I am. When we were growing up, we would uh, kind of help each other. I would help her with math. She would help me with, uh, you know, geography and things like that because I knew nothing about the world and I would help her with math. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I was always a, a math kid as well. That's funny. Um, so what do you think stands out from you, you know, as an entrepreneur now, looking back to your childhood, is there anything that you thought, did you have any small businesses when you were growing up? Any significant leadership experiences that makes you think that you were inclined to later start a company? I think a lot of it came from, at least in the early stages, a lot of it came from my parents. Uh, because, like I mentioned, my mom has her degrees in math, she operations mm-hmm. research, statistics. Uh, and then I, I, I watched her get her teaching degree because she said, you know, this is actually much more applicable to children at an early ages than large corporations doing statistical A-B tests. And and that kind of mentality stuck with me. Like you could get this massive amount of knowledge and wisdom and then apply it to somewhere where no one ever thought possible. And I think that kind of reasoning stuck with me. And my dad was always very uh, corporate, you know, working in GE. He's worked in GE pretty much all of his life. So my dad uh, very much emanated this work ethic, this persistence at staying with an idea uh, in, for decades at a time. So between my, my mom and my dad, I have this uh, mentality of applying old technology to new adaptations and this mm-hmm. idea of persistence, that kind of combines into, at least in my mind, entrepreneurship, right? Trying to find uh, new solutions to old or new problems and persisting at that. That's really how you get a company off the ground. And that's really how you build a successful business. You know, that's so interesting because I think for our parents' generation, it's very common to stay at one company for a while. Um, But you're the first person I've heard talk about it in a persistence point of view. And I think that's really interesting um, and something that I never thought about before. So, oh, I'll you know, I see it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's, I actually think that's very accurate though. Um, so, you know, so you went to Johns Hopkins, just like me, mm-hmm. and to study math. Did you think about entrepreneurship then? And if not, when were you starting to really think, you know, this could be my career? So I kind of had like off and on outbursts of, I want to do something more applied because I was in the pure math department. So I, I'm, I'm the I'm the guy sitting in front of a chalkboard thinking about why 17 exists. Uh, that, that, sounds, that, like sounds very, uh, that sounds very heavy. Yeah, so, math was boring. Kind of, <laughs> yeah, applied yeah, math see, was most people, 
<laughs> Most people go to bars and they do like a fun bar trick, like make this ball levitate or something. I go to a bar and I prove how 0.99 repeating equals one. And people are like blown away. That's my bar trick. Um, so at the first couple... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that so much. So for the first couple of years, um, I was working on my pure math and I had finished my bachelor's within two years of being at Hopkins. Um, so I had started my master's about in my third year at Hopkins. And around that time, I had started to TA. Uh, I, I TA'd actually about 14 classes at Johns Hopkins between computer science, math, and also in the entrepreneurship department. And the only reason I was in the entrepreneurship department was because I had made a, I had uh, gotten a mentor, uh, Dr. Pam Sheff, uh, in the entrepreneurship undergraduate department at Johns Hopkins. And I actually was helping her with oral presentations, like speech giving, uh, because I really enjoyed giving speeches and I really enjoyed public presentation, open presentations. So it was actually through her that she introduced me to my current co-founder, Jameson Rodriguez, uh, because he was actually finishing up selling his chocolate company, and he was looking for a new opportunity in the tech field. So it was actually chocolate? through a mutual. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you say chocolate company? Chocolate company. Yeah, he's a chocolatier. He would actually make truffles <laughs> and sell them to five star hotels. Wow. Which is awesome. Anyway, so he sold that company as a junior in college. He's much more. He's cooler than I am. Uh, he saw that company, and as I finished out my master's in math, I decided that I wanted to kind of go all in on this uh, more practical approach. And actually, something sticks out in my mind from a former professor slash mentor in the math department. Uh, he, told, he told me once that mathematicians rarely become famous, and if they do, it's only 50 years after their time when someone finally figures out what the hell they were talking about and figures out how to use it. So a, a good example of that is Einstein. Um, so Einstein, one of his biggest applications of his work is actually in microprocessors. So the theory of relativity and time dilation helps us figure out GPS signals and, and microprocessing. So that's actually an application much more in the future than Einstein himself. And I took that in more of a negative approach, like, wow, I, I don't want to only be recognized 50 years later when someone finally figures out, quote, what the hell I was talking about. So mm -hmm. my philosophy is when building an effective team and an effective product, try to base all of your work on recent academic findings or recent lab work so that you could always be not only on the cutting edge of technology, uh, but be that help you build a defensible moat for your company. So if you're using technology that's extremely new, it's much harder for new enterprises to come in and, and kind of steal your work. Got it. I think that's really interesting. Do you think part of it was just a little depressing that, you know, you wouldn't uh, be recognized, even though that you could, I mean, in theory, those, big applications might lead to something um, in the future, but it, it's interesting that you want to work on something so current. Or do you find that it was yeah. more the environment now that that leads that way? You know, we're in such I a actually, different environment than when Einstein was alive now. Yeah, I actually was introduced to entrepreneurship uh, very practically when one of my, at the time, fraternity brothers started a company when I was a sophomore 
And he actually invited me on as an intern. Uh, and I told him, like, listen, I don't know how to code. I don't know anything about coding. I know math, though. And he's like, that's fine. That's fine. I'll teach you how to code. So in that summer, I actually was applying my math to coding, trying to, and the company was uh, for a cold chain vaccine monitoring. So within three months, I learned how to code and I actually wrote a patent and we got a patent accepted for this work. Uh, but what I, that kind of led me to believe was, wow, there must be some marriage between math and computers. And the CTO of the company looked at me and said, yeah, it's called data science. And I was like, oh, I had never heard of it before. So I kind of that, at that moment, I realized, okay, I think I like data science, right? I think I like this mm -hmm. marriage of math and computer science. Uh, and that's what led me to where I am now, writing books on it, you know, and teaching it. Mm -hmm. So your first company then, what did it do? So my first company that I was a founder of was mm -hmm. Legion Analytics. That was the sales company that we went through Ycom Leader Fellowship with. And so how did that end up and where, you know, how did that shape what the company you're making now in terms of culture, in terms of lessons learned or anything like that? So one of the big lessons learned uh, on my end as a founder uh, was always listen to your, uh, not just your customers, but your prospective customers. Uh, and that's kind of like an analogy to being data-driven, right? You don't want to just make a product that you think is useful uh, because more often than not, you're the only person who will think it's amazing. As you're developing a product, you should continuously show people what you're building. And whether that's through a very small network like friends and family or colleagues or a large network like posting it on Twitter or Facebook and making a free application or, or on Hacker News or something like that. Mm -hmm. By continuously showing people what you're building, you're continuously getting validation or the opposite. People are telling you that, hell, this is totally useless. I would never use it. I see how it's cool, but I don't think this is useful to me. And, and that's a big lesson in listening to your uh, customers, your consumers, and, and figuring out what their pain points are and then adapting your solution to fix it. Definitely. I mean, it's funny because there's that lean movement that we see so much now in the Bay. But as I read Steve Jobs' biography, I feel like his post-hole mantra was people don't know what they want. And you kind of just give them, you tell them what they want. But for well, I think physical products, that's different. I think Steve Jobs is kind of an anomaly in that sense, uh, right? Because uh, many people believe that innovation is just someone seeing a need that hasn't been filled yet or that people aren't even aware of, right? So when, someone, when the idea of Uber or Lyft first came out, people were like, oh, why would I ever get into a car with a stranger and have them? That's hitchhiking. You're literally describing the concept of hitchhiking is getting into a stranger's car and trusting them to drive you somewhere. Uh, so you can argue that people like Steve Jobs and people uh, like that are, are people who can see a need that not other people can even see yet. And I, I would argue that the majority of companies don't operate like that. Uh, I'm not saying that's a bad or a good thing, but a majority of companies are trying to solve a problem that is very obviously there, right? You know, you talk to any sales company, the obvious problem is sales is hard. We're trying to make it easier. You, know, you talk to Salesforce, that's pretty much their big pitch is, hey, sales is difficult. We're trying to make that a lot easier for you to do. They're mm -hmm. not necessarily seeing a, a problem that no one else sees. The problem is very obvious. 
So not all companies, I think not all people think like Steve Jobs, but people like Steve Jobs need to exist to kind of move us forward. Uh, so I, I totally agree. And I, I think that's interesting. I was reading a post yesterday by Mike Maples on discovering hidden secrets. And I think his whole thing is you want to be contrarian and right, but the be- the best secrets and the best companies, um, and, you know, be there, I think they invested in Lyft C round was when you see things that no one else sees yet, um, especially from an investor perspective, right? You find a founder that sounds a little crazy, but it's almost crazy that they're right. And you think they're going to be right <laughs> based on what you see happening in the market. And so I'm curious, no. though. Yeah, what, no? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. No, you are correct, is what I was trying to So, you know, given what we're talking about, I'm wondering then, how do you think, how do you answer people who might say that they're worried about where AI is going, um, even though that in the Valley and, you know, we obviously see the great implications of it in terms of saving you time and basically freeing up creativity, but people are worried about displacing jobs. Like, what would your response be about the future of AI? I think that with any new technology is going to come a brand new set of haters, if you will. And they're not wrong in being weary of a new technology. That's not why I think there's a problem. I think there's a problem because the people who see AI as a threat either don't understand what AI uh, can be used for, or they see it as a threat because, like you said, they're trying to come for their jobs, right? They're gonna take their jobs over. And to someone like that who says, like, well, why would you want to develop AI to put people out of business? I I kind of redirect them to this idea of the future of work, uh, right? You know, the whole concept of what does a human's life look like when we've automated most jobs? And of course, I don't think that's going to happen for uh, many, many years, if not decades. But in the immediate future, within you know, three, five, even 10 years from now, uh, the people who are afraid of AI or afraid specifically of AI taking over their jobs, I think I take this more as an opportunity to kind of learn about the technology, uh, try to get new training in the technology, and actually this will open up new avenues for employment. You know, we're going to see job titles that we've never even heard of in 10 years. You know, uh, you're talking about you know, the advent of uh, Elon Musk's new solar tiles. Uh, I, mean, I know it's not AI, but with that new technology will come a new type of technician who can install and monitor it. You know, mm-hmm. with AI, with Kylie, for example, when you have 300 Kylie models all talking for your organization, you're going to have to have AI managers people who not only understand the AI at a very, very high level, but can manage the AI. And as people like myself uh, uh, develop AI technologies for, uh, for consumers, for customers who don't understand AI, um, that's just going to have to come with this caveat of, you don't even have to understand what is a neural net to continue. You just have to understand the capabilities of the neural net that I'm selling you. Yeah. Right? When you hire a person, uh, you don't necessarily need to know their entire life story of how they got there. You need to be aware of what they're going to do for your company and how to pay them um, respectively. Like, 
when you hire a Kylie, it's the same thing. You don't need to know the inner workings of the neural net behind Kylie. You just need to understand what Kylie is going to be able to do for you and manage that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think for me, it's, it's funny because I recently was asked where I think the future, what I think layer of the software stack will be the most transformed over the next few years between infrastructure platform and application. Um, I ended up saying platform, but I think there's going to be a ridiculous number of applications, but the biggest shift will be from the layer underneath that. But I, I, I think people, if they can find applications that make their life better, are always going to be more willing to adopt. And I think, you know, we're still in the early phases of what they are calling, you know, the third wave of data. Um, but I, I am excited by the prospect of the sheer exponential growth that's going to happen in the next 10 years. I agree. And with any new technology, we're going to see an explosion of interest, uh, mainly in investors and VCs funding new AI companies. But I think the winners are going to end up being the ones who are successfully able to integrate themselves into long-standing existing technologies and existing uh, processes. So Mm -hmm. our philosophy at Kylie is not just to make the weirdest AI possible and have people fund it with lots of money, uh, right? Our, Our philosophy is make an AI that can integrate successfully into what humans are already doing so that we become kind of a part of their lives and therefore a part of the future. And, and I think that's a mentality that should be adopted to any company who wants to become you know, a longstanding success story uh, is you have to be able to find a way to integrate yourselves into the lives of um, humans and, the, and the, into the planet as a whole, or else you're just going to fizzle out with the fourth wave. Yeah. Exactly. I, I, I have, uh, I realize we're going over the time because I'm, I'm so entranced by what you're saying. Um, so I'm only going to leave time for a couple fun questions at the end and you covered a lot about good advice, um, already. So I'm going to ask you maybe just one question. If you could interview one founder, who would you most want to interview and why? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> if I could interview one founder, uh, dead or alive, am I? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, definitely then Henry Ford. Really? Why? I, I have a huge uh, crush on Henry. I have his autobiography sitting literally right next to me. <laughs> um, I, I, I love Henry Ford. And because most people obviously know him for, for motors, the assembly line, blah, 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 blah. But I actually think that most of his genius, most of his philosophies, around integrating machinery, because that's at the time, you know, he called machinery into human lives. And in the first two chapters of his autobiography, it's all about people are afraid of machines. They shouldn't be. We just have to make sure that we integrate them in the right way with, with mankind, and then we'll be happy with them. And then guess what? Now we are happy with machines. Um, so his, his whole philosophy is not just on making everything more efficient, it's about how to integrate this new technology that I've come up with into the lives, the pre-existing lives of humans so that they accept it, trust it, and use it to move forward as a species. And I think that's exactly what I would talk to him about is how, how do you take this new technology that people haven't even heard of and how do you give it to them in such a way that it's not witchcraft? And you know, 
that's what he really specialized in. And that's really what I would talk to him about. So what is the book called? Uh, it's called My Life and Work, uh, an autobiography of Henry Ford. Uh, it's definitely a great read. I'm definitely looking to it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Zan. This has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, so I really appreciate it. Of course. And I, I would be remiss to not give a shameful plug out to my actual book uh, called The Principles of Data Science. Uh, for those of you looking to kind of level up in your career by learning about data science, it is a book that starts from scratch. You, you don't need to be a master in math or computer science to pick it up. And I definitely recommend it. Uh, well, I will definitely pick that up, actually, because I would love to read it. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much again. All right. Thank you very much, Christina. Have a good rest of the day. And that's it for this week's episode of 52 Founders. So thanks for joining us. And be sure to check out 52founders.com to stay up to date. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for another episode.